So let me begin by uh, obviously introducing the fact that this week, not last, but this week we begin our annual Advent series. It'll be a four-part series, uh, as you can see from our lovely screen that we have, beginning today, the 15th, the 22nd, and then actually culminating on Christmas Eve, uh, the 24th of December. So four-part basically, but really three major parts, the the Sundays that bring us up to that. do this most years and, and talk about what's, why do we do this every year? Why do we do an Advent series each year? Um, and it's a good question, and I'm going to look at that a little bit with you this morning. But uh, just to repeat a couple of things in case you're not aware, the actual word Advent comes from the Latin, uh, something that I was required to learn for five years in a private boys' Catholic Jesuit high school. Okay, trust me, it was painful. Uh, I, I learned a few things. I, I remember that porcus aum is the uh, male and female and plural declension of pig. Okay, I just, just wanted to let you know I remembered my Latin. But it comes from the Latin word adventus, right, which, which is remarkable. Um, it's, it's actually, having learned Latin, I remember at the time thinking, like, that was, that was so painful having to do this every year. I barely passed it, you know, but it actually prepared me well for learning Greek, which I got to tell you is on a whole other level when it comes to languages, so there's that advantage. The word adventus... Uh, or Advent literally means arrival or appearing. And we know that there are actually, when it comes to Jesus, or maybe you didn't know this, there are actually two Advents. There is the first Advent, the coming 2,000 plus years ago at Christmas, the first Christmas. And there is the second Advent, the one that we're waiting for, and we sang about somewhat today, right? We're waiting for that second Advent. The first Advent we call the Incarnation. And it's beautifully recorded by John in his gospel. You're all familiar with these words. I love them, so I'll put them on screen for you. First, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so even in that word incarnation, that English word incarnation, we see another Greek word right in the middle of it. It's the word carne which literally means flesh or meat. And so we we see that, that this is really speaking literally that God came to us at that time 2,000 plus years ago in the flesh, taking on flesh. It's significant. We get used to it in the church, thinking of it, but I hope you see it differently today. I'd also like to suggest to you that there's something else about doing an Advent series every year. It's hard. I've mentioned to some of you before, and none of you really feel sympathetic towards me, but it's actually hard for the the preacher, right? I mean, the stories don't change. They're the same stories. This is the ninth year in a row that we as a church have done an Advent series. And I got to tell you, when I sit down at the beginning to prepare it, I'm like, something fresh, please. (laughs) Like, it's... it's, But as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, okay, well, if if, if it's hard for me... And it is, until the Holy Spirit goes, it's the Word of God, Glenn. I'll show you something, right? And He does. But it's also maybe sometimes harder for you, for us, as the church, to do that, to do these series. And and so I want to give you a couple of reasons why that might be the case for you today. The first reason might be the the absolute disconnect of the 2,000-plus years, right? I mean, it was a long, long time ago, right? There's a galaxy far, far away. There's a movie coming that I want to see. I mean, it's a long, long time ago, right? 
It really is. And so there's this disconnect. I mean, none of us were actually there. None of us saw Jesus in the flesh, let alone in the manger. We've seen pictures of it. We, we can picture it in our eyes, in our, in our mind's eye. But, but literally, let's be honest, it, it's two-dimensional at best, isn't it? Despite the nativity scenes and the, the, the things that we put on stage, and the, it, it's two-dimensional at best. So there's that. Another reason is that, of course, Advent or Christmas has become just a little bit over-sentimentalized and commercialized in our world today. Amen? It has. And so sometimes as the church, we sit there and go, oh, you know, the guy in the red suit, and we become critical of it. And yet by the same token, church, we get wrapped up in it too. In this sense, I'm not saying that we celebrate that as much as, as, uh, or in a, in a way that's inappropriate, but we, we get wrapped up in the sense of we, we look for Christmas to provide the same thing others in our culture look for Christmas to provide, which is the warm fuzzy. You know, the, the, the nostalgia, the joy, the peace, the comfort, right? We look for that and, and, and therefore then sometimes also get drawn to enjoying the same things that the culture does, which is not all bad, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. A third reason is certainly, and I want to focus on this one with you today, is this. A third reason why it's hard is the miraculous. Miracles? Angels? Appearing? A virgin birth? Incredulous, some would say. As a Christian, I believe sometimes that can be a real hard thing at Christmas. We, we by faith, believe these things. We do. I was raised in the 60s. I know it's hard to believe looking at me. Okay, maybe today the way I feel. But the reality is I was raised in the 60s, and i got to tell you, one of the things about the 60s that I remember a lot was there was a lot of talk about UFOs, right? Like, it was everywhere. Like, there was sightings, right? And there was the area, what is it, 51? I mean, it was, the, 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 you know, like the conspiracy theories. They've been hidden. The, the aliens have landed. And there were movies galore, right? And most of those movies were about you know, extraterrestrials coming to the earth who were a far more advanced than we were, and basically they were coming here to wipe us out, right? It made for good movies. But, but that was, at, at that time of my life, that was, and I, I wasn't a believer at that time, at that time of my life, that, that, was, that was unbelievable, and yet there was like, Kind of some hope in it. Not that they wipe us up, out, but that there was other life elsewhere. And so that's why today, of course, some of us are looking so much forward to Christmas time to seeing the last Star Wars episode. But Christmas? A virgin birth? I mean, let's be honest. Although polls today would say to us that most people in our world, believe it or not, polls would tell you this, most people in the world today, a high percentage, still believe that there is a God. They believe there's something else out there. There's a higher power, right? And, and many would even believe that Jesus once lived. But I want to suggest to you maybe it's more on the plane of belief in UFOs, right? And so that stretch, that's hard for us, even for Christians. It can, it can be hard to enter into the reality of the first advent. So how do we overcome these reasons? Well, we have another look. <laughs> We, we, we dive in again. We, we have another look at this 
this amazing story. And so my hope for us is that we will, we will get a glimpse today, next week, and in the weeks that follow of a truly three-dimensional story that is true. It's, it's going to be hard. But let's dig in and let's look at that. And so I believe that we're going to see today that Advent is actually this. Actually, it is a cosmic event. The only true cosmic event. Movies make up things, let's be honest. This is an amazing cosmic event that we're going to see. And this cosmic event begins today, how? With the arrival, the appearance from outside of our realm, outside of time and space, of an angel whose name is Gabriel. Now, I know most of you realize that our pattern is we usually read the passage first. It's a long one today. So for time's sake, I thought what we would do, and it's a narrative, so it's one of those that fits really well into just reading it and going along as we're unpacking what the story is all about. And so that's what we're going to do. And also, I usually have some kind of like three-point sermon notes for you today. I, I, I don't. <laughs> At best, what I have for you is a title. And it's going to be the title for the next three weeks, except it's going to change slightly. The title for today's sermon is this, The First Cosmic Event at Advent. So if you have your Bibles with me, open them to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 5 and diving into this first cosmic event today. And so read with me. I'll put the verses on screen as well. We read Luke recording, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So again, we we know Luke. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time. We ended up uh, in chapter 14 last week. That's taken us 18 months to get there. But, so we've been through this passage before, and, and I'm hoping today we'll see a fresh approach. But we know Luke is this historian. He's a journalist. He, he's collecting facts and eyewitness events from all of the others who knew Jesus. But one of the things that's remarkable about him is how detailed and specific he is. And, and again, this is Luke, the Gentile pagan who's now come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is, this is what he's like. He, just, he gives us details And so he gives us the details here in this opening verse so that these are the days of Herod. Herod, this is historical. The king of Judea, there's also a priest at that time whose name is Zechariah, and he's from a particular division of the priestly order. His wife's name is Elizabeth, and she's she's from the line of Aaron. She's a daughter of Aaron, which is amazing here, the, the details. And here's the thing. All of these details were in those days and are today verifiable. I've made this comment before uh, about C.S. Lewis and his good buddy J.R.R. Tolkien, and I think it applies again well here this morning. You know the story, C.S. Lewis was an atheist, didn't believe in God. He was also a literary genius and and, uh, uh, um, instructor and professor at Oxford University and in Cambridge as well at times. But but his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, right? professed faith to him and, and, and led him to, to trust in Jesus. And, and it started with the Gospels. And one of the comments that C.S. Lewis has often made is now he, he and J.R.R. Tolkien, I mean, Lord of the Rings for Tolkien, 
Chronicles of Narnia for C.S.S. Lewis. Both of these men knew one thing really, really well. They knew literature, but they knew one thing about literature really well, fantasy. And, and they knew how to distinguish between fantasy and other forms of literature. And C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity and other writings uh, and talks, has often been quoted as saying, he goes, you know, when, when I read the Gospels and I read passages like this, he said, what I read were literally news reports. This is not fantasy. I know fantasy. So this is a, it might seem like a trivial introduction, but it's important because Luke is giving us facts. The Holy Spirit is giving us facts. For what reason? That we would have certainty like Luke wanted his good friend Theophilus to have about the Word of God. The story goes on, verses 6 and 7, and they were both this is Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, righteous before God. Look at these words. Walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. I, I smile because I, I can't... I, the more I read these words, and I've read them so many times, and so have you... I just smile because of, again, the things that the Holy Spirit keeps showing us. But so there's a few characteristics that we see that Luke is recording to give us some background on, on who this couple are. We know about their, their, you know, who they are in history, but now this is some background about their, their characteristics, who they are as people. And so they were, we see these words, two really important words. They were righteous and blameless in every way. Come on, that, that's, that's amazing as a statement. But it, it, again, it's a statement that Luke writes, and he's been told that by the disciples and the eyewitnesses have told him that, but he's also been inspired that way by the Holy Spirit to make that point. They were, in the eyes of God, righteous and blameless. She and her husband are old. This is an important point. They're really old, okay? Like older than me, okay? much older. They're very old people. But they have been very faithful. All of their lives, they've been very, very faithful. He being a priest, she being his wife and supporting him, they've been faithful week after week at temple and at synagogue. But then at, in verse 7, we see a very key word. Always key in the Scripture, in the New Testament, whenever you see that word, right? The three-letter word, but... Whenever we see that word, there's always something coming afterwards that's critically important. But in this case, but, I'm saying it a lot, but literally relates to this. There's a contrast going to be displayed for us. And we must see this because it's, it's setting up this great contrast. And so what is it? What's that contrast? Well, she's barren. Righteous, blameless, barren. That's the contrast. Now, you and I might read that today and we should. We might read that today, and we might think something like this. Well, you know, hey, listen, that's, that's kind of sad. I mean, here's this very faithful couple. You know, they've been, they've been going to church regularly. They've been serving, loving other people, uh, doing what's been called upon them to do on a regular basis, and, and uh, they, they, they couldn't have a child. I mean, how sad is that? And, and, and clearly, they've been praying about it, and, and we, we've been praying for them, and it just doesn't happen. Oh, man, too bad they weren't like in 2020, almost, uh, and, and had the technology that we had today. That might be how we would view it, right? It's possible that we might feel something like that. 
On the other hand, the word barren, following the words righteous and blameless, would have made absolutely no sense to a Jewish audience in that day. Zero. That's the contrast. That's the important point that the Holy Spirit wants us to pick up on. They would have heard those words and said, wait a second, Luke. Wait a second, God, if this is your word. So what you're saying is they were both righteous and blameless, something every Jew wants to be, every person should want to be, and yet at the same time she's barren? Who are you kidding? Is this a joke? Now that's harsh, right? But honestly, friends, that would be their thinking. It it would make absolutely no sense to them in that day. Well, and why? Well, again, we've seen this a lot in the Gospel of Luke, haven't we, right? Their view of righteousness, or, or put more correctly, what it meant to be righteous or how you could become righteous um, was really uh, not in sync at all with what Jesus was preaching and teaching, which was one of the things that disturbed them greatly about him, right? They believed that the sign of God's acceptance and approval was his blessings. And one of the most obvious signs of being blessed by God was children, So if a woman, listen, if a woman was barren, then that had to mean only one thing, one thing and only one thing. Either she or he was not nearly as righteous and as blameless as they should be. That's what they believed. Really what they believed, it was a sign of God's judgment against them. That's harsh. (laughs) But that, that was the norm in that day. And we saw it in the life of the disciples, right? We see it in the Gospels, replayed out all the time. In John chapter 9, verse 2, we we see the disciples walking with Jesus, and and a blind man comes up, and and the disciples wanting to be, you know, like, appear to be really intelligent in front of Jesus, they point at the blind man and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? totally not getting it. Been with Jesus for a year and a half at this point in John 9, and they don't get that, right? Well, Jesus, of course, corrects them and answers them and says, neither. It's not because of either their parents or his sin. I mean, obviously, he was born blind. And then what Jesus does is what Jesus came to do, which is to heal, and he heals the man, and he sends him on his way, and he displays at that point in front of his disciples the and glory of God. So essentially, the religion that they had turned God's law and prophet into, prophets into was a religion of works. And so here's how it works, right? You sin and God is against you. This was their religion. You sin and God is against you. you withhold, he, he will withhold His blessings from you because of your sin. And finally, He'll punish you, which withholding His blessings is a form of punishment. On the other hand, if you work harder to show yourself righteous and blameless, and then because of how good a person you are, you'll put God on the hook. You know, if you read your Bible often enough, you show up for temple or for church often enough, you give often enough, you serve often enough, you look holy and righteous before other men and other women in your community, in your church, God has to bless you. That's apparently 
how it worked. That's what they believed. They believed basically in a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, didn't they? There's churches out there that, that preach that today, aren't there? There's a few, maybe. Not here, but there are a few. So listen, Elizabeth, actually in our passage for today, at the end of our passage, which is verse 25, I'll put it on screen for you, she confirms their attitude actually in the text at the end of the passage when she says this, thus the Lord has done, this is when when she finds out the Lord is going to give her a child, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away, look at this word, my reproach among the people. She confirms that all of her life has been, she's been made to feel a reproach, which, which is literally a good translation for that word, would be shameful. She's felt it. Now, I want you to imagine that for a minute. For decades, they'd been preaching for a child, uh, pre- praying for a child, and then obviously they give up, right? And yet they, they go to temple, they go to synagogue week after week, He's a, a leader, a priest in the, in the synagogue and in the temple, specifically. They have no children. She's barren. And what does she have to endure? The eyes, the nodding and shaking heads, the shame. And so it's confirmed, really, in, in, in her words here. She felt this and saw and heard the snickers the knowing eyes, and the shame of it all. Pretty devastating, huh? To be treated that way? I don't know about you, but would, would, would that cause you to maybe lose your faith that God is good to everyone all the time? So now one of the things I hope you will see from this story, and actually from our theme verse, our theme verse for the series, we'll get into it more next week and the week after. You all know this verse, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, is that God enters the world cosmically in the flesh because He so loves us. He so loved Zechariah and Elizabeth that He's sending His first cosmic event angel to do this for them. He loves us. He demonstrates His love for us by entering into our brokenness. This is a picture of all of us. We're all barren in some way, shape, or form. And so Jesus is entering into that. And, and uh, so we know this is true. We, 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 we are not barren because of some current sin necessarily. <laughs> necessarily. But we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Paul teaches us that in Romans 3, right? We all are born in sin, separated from God, into a broken world, and we all need God to enter into our brokenness, heal us, and give us hope. So, of course, barrenness doesn't exclusively have to do with children, does it? No, the feeling or sense of barrenness relates to every aspect of our humanity. I want you to think about that as you go to Missional Community Group this week. I want to spend a lot of time giving you illustrations on that day, but just think about barrenness in your own life. Think about things that you've hoped for that aren't there right now, haven't come, you've prayed about, haven't arrived yet in your life. They're numerous, aren't they? I can still think of a few that I have hoped for. And so this is a beautiful picture that we see from God. So now let's see, especially at Christmas, 
what happened to the first Christmas and continues to this day is that our God so loves us that he does much more than just send us a good rule book and a self-help manual. That's, that's what I think the people in that day, the Jewish people in that day, thought the Torah and the law and the prophets was, right? And some people even today believe that in the church. No, he sent us his son. God himself entered into our brokenness, and he's here right now today and every day. So let's now see what he did for this couple by sending Gabriel. Verses 8 and 9, we go on, it reads this, Now while he was serving, Zechariah, as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So it starts as another typical temple day for Zechariah, but a little different. He's part of a division, which is approximately 300 priests, and there's approximately 100 divisions, so do the math, right? There's a lot of priests. And so isn't it a bit ironic? Isn't that a bit ironic? I mean, what are the odds that this would be the, the Saturday that he's at temple to do burning of the incense and prayers, and, and, and he would be chosen by lot? What are the odds? Fluke of nature? You know, roll of the dice? No, I don't think so. He's there. He senses the rolling eyes as well when he enters into the temple, and yet he goes about his job. And then we read in verses 10 and 12, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside, remember that, at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear. Oh, yeah. Fear fell upon him. So, Zechariah enters the temple, and he's doing his duties. A great number of people, again, remember this, are outside praying, which was customary during the burning of the incense. This is what they did all the time. And then it happens. A cosmic event. From outside of this world, listen, from outside of the cosmos, out of time and space, an angel of the Lord, the mighty Gabriel, appears. And, and, and guess what? He's a little frightened. Do you think he might be? Do you think he might be? Fear comes upon him. Fear comes upon him. I think some of us might think, I would love that to happen. <laughs> that I would love something like that to happen because that would, oh, that, how that would strengthen my faith. Be careful what you wish for. There are no examples in the Scripture where people have encountered angels and it's been like cute little chubby, you know, floating with wings guys that have bows and arrows. There's no picture like that. There's no Cupid. Okay, there are cherubim and seraphim, so there's a possibility, right? No. Fear. These are magnificent, magnificent beings. So a little background on angels for us, just very brief. First, they are real. They are created beings like you and I, but very, very different. They are immortal. They will live forever. There are two that we know of in Scripture. There are 
literally millions. There are legions of them. But there are two of, that we know of by name. There's Michael, of course, the archangel, and our friend that we meet today whose name is Gabriel. There are other angelic beings called cherubim and seraphim, as I mentioned to you, and there are also these attributes related to angels. They are mighty, mighty and powerful beings. They are messengers of God. They go to war for God. They do whatever God commands them to do. If they appeared out of nowhere today, I think some of us might think they are extraterrestrials, right? And that fear would literally come upon us. But they didn't come to destroy. They actually came, and in this case, Gabriel came to comfort and to bring, look at this, good news to Zechariah. Lastly, there are also bad angels, aren't there? There are Satan and his minions. There are demons, fallen angels. They too are immortal, by the way. They will live, and they are also very real. It's not fantasy. This is fact. Well, then the angel says these wonderful, encouraging words to Zechariah after Zechariah's shaking, or while he's shaking, I should say. He says to him, again, affirming that Zechariah is fearful. He says, Zechariah, do not be afraid. That must have come as comforting words to Zechariah. But look, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So the angel's calming voice precedes his announcement. Your prayer has been heard. Singular. Your prayer has been heard. So my question for you is this. Do you think Zechariah was in the temple at burning the incense at that time praying for a son? Not likely. That's not what we see from this text. In fact, no. Let's be clear. He's given up on that, and we will see that confirmed in the text. He's given up on that. So why do I say that? Well, because, as I said, we're going to see it. Zechariah responds in verse 18 with these words. He says, how shall I know this? This is the English translation of the Greek, but it's like, come on. Who are you kidding? For I, look at this. I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So, in fact, no, the truth is he doesn't buy it at all. He doesn't buy it at all. I find it interesting that earlier, uh, it, it is in the text recorded by Luke that they were both advanced in years. And I said this before when we went through this passage. Zechariah is probably very thankful that Elizabeth didn't hear him putting it this way. Because he describes himself as old, but she's advanced. Can you imagine the dinner conversation after that? So Zechariah, listen, he's told that his prayer is answered. He's given very specific details that, in fact, he will have a son, which in that day was the sign of God truly, truly approving of you as a man, as a leader in the church, and that his name was going to be John. But despite that, Zechariah is what? He's in doubt. But also, I think we can take from this, the inference is this. He's faithless. 
when it comes to God answering prayer and keeping his promises. He's faithless. He's struggling. So I believe this should be very encouraging to all of us here today, and I'm sure some of you have seen us this way. And the number one reason would be this. God answers prayers. Amen? God answers our prayers. And listen, it's always in his time, in the right time, in his will, and always for our good. That's what we should learn from this. Decades and decades ago, Zachariah and Elizabeth had given up praying this prayer. Come on. They'd given up. God had looked over them and, and forgotten them. And maybe they didn't feel very blessed, I'm sure. But now, God answers. And listen, not, not just with a son, but the son whom Jesus would later say these words. Born of a woman, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He said those words, right? But then he also followed that up with (laughs) the one that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. So there's hope for you and me, right? There's hope for us. So Gabriel then describes for Zechariah, and I'm just going to read the rest of these passages, bringing us back to verse 18. For Zechariah, what his son is going to be like. Zechariah, I've got some really good news for you, man. This is what your kid is going to be like. And who he's going to be. Beginning in verse 14, we read, And you will have joy and gladness, and and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And, And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Key. We'll pick up on that next week. This is this is great stuff. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How good is this? I'm going to have a a, a little boy, and and he's going to be this? Well, that brings us back to verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this, right? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Z, listen, Zach, did you just hear this? So again, remember this. Zechariah wasn't still praying for a son at this point, was he? He'd given up. So let me ask you this. What was he praying for in the temple? What was he praying for? What were all the people outside the temple praying for? Because they were all praying, right? We read that. And he was to be praying the same thing that they're praying for. Were they praying, dear Lord, it's shameful that these people don't have a child. No, they weren't. And we know that. This is so good. They and he were praying that God would fulfill the last prophecy that was given 400 years ago by the prophet Malachi. And it's the last words of the Old Testament. And they would be praying this every time the incense was burnt, faithfully for how many years? 400 years. Let me put those words on screen for you. Behold, the prophet Elijah, speaking on behalf of the Lord God, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. End of story. God goes silent for 400 years. Please don't destroy us, Lord. (laughs) Would you send your prophet, who's the runner of the Messiah? That's the prayer. They were praying, and Zechariah should have been praying intensely at this point for the Messiah to come. Roman rule. Life is horrible. We're all barren. Lord, send your forerunner so that we will know. So Gabriel the angel has just told Zechariah that it is this is who his son will be. Do you get the impression that he missed that when he says what he says in verse 18? Surely he did. Why? Well, he was still thinking about himself, wasn't he? You didn't answer my prayer about a son. So, like, how's that going to happen when, quite frankly, things aren't working? Because I'm old and she's older. This is a crisis of faith. So, friends, I believe we do that often too when, listen, waiting for God to answer our prayer for a child or a spouse or a new and better job for a house, whatever, and then we miss the better thing. And and yet we still feel a certain amount of bitterness towards God for not giving us that one thing that we were praying for for so long. Sometimes you just have to wait and be ready to be surprised. It goes on, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, by the way. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, Zach, gospel. And behold... You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these words take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, this isn't, this isn't Gabriel's will. This is the judgment of God. This is the real judgment of God on him for his unbelief. Verses 21 and 20 say this, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak. Cosmic intervention. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. (laughs) I I, I just love this. I I mean, come on, it's a little bit like he came out and he went, it's charades. Like the guy is, we learn later, he's, he's deaf and he's mute, right? And, and he, he's like, he, he's waving with his hands. He's trying to make some sense to them, but he, he cannot communicate this with them. The story ends in verse 24 and 25 with these beautiful words. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my shame, my reproach among the people. 
quite a story, eh? As we conclude, I, I think there are a couple of details we need to wrap up. First is this. I want you to think about again, or if you have your Bibles open, um, look again at verse 13 and 17 in comparison. Verse 13 tells us about Zechariah's prayer, right? Two things about that prayer. Not the one that he was praying in the temple, but that he had prayed decades earlier. Two things about it. It was heard and it was answered. Amen? Like, come on, amen? (laughs) It was answered. This is awesome. But one more thing. He's told he will be named John because he is the long-awaited forerunner of the Messiah as prophesied by Malachi. So so now look at verse 17 because what does it do? It confirms that. So I have a question for you, and it's a really important question. It's a challenging question for some of you theologically. I love this. I find it challenging. So the question is this. Would Malachi's prophecy have come true at that time if Zechariah had not prayed? Let me repeat that question. Would Malachi's prophecy have come true at that time if Zechariah had not prayed? Now, some of you are going to say something like this. God will do whatever he wants and when he wants, regardless what we do or do not do. Please be careful. Reread the text. I don't believe the text gives us license to believe that. Why do we believe that, do you think? Well, I want you to look at this then. If God promised to send a messenger, a forerunner, John, and then he does by answering the prayer of a priest in the first century, what do you think he will do with Jesus' promises that he's coming again? The second advent. So question, do you pray, dear Lord Jesus, come again, come quickly? Do you pray that, like, every day, often? I I know when I was a little bit younger, I was like, you know, you you could maybe wait a little while. (laughs) I've got a life to live, you know, I've got some things I'd like to accomplish, you know, kids, you know, whatever, okay, when they're out of the house, it'll be even better, you know, whatever, like, There's points in our lives where we might think that way, right? But are you praying that? Do you even believe that prayer matters, Christian? Come on. This is where we got to go today with this in conclusion, right? Have you ever really had a prayer life or maybe given up on prayer? Some of us do from time to time, even today. Have you prayed for something and thought that God doesn't hear you, doesn't care, and isn't going to answer you? And even then, after a long time, then... This? Wow. Well, I don't even know if I prayed for that. Think about this then. Think about this. Maybe prayer, too, is a cosmic event. Ever thought of it that way? It actually is. When, when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, just before he gave up his spirit, do you know what happened? The curtain in the temple was torn in two, giving you and me direct access to our Heavenly Father. 
He is omnipresent. He is here right now with us. He is in this world. But prayer is directly leaving our time and space and going into the throne room of God. Do you know that? Do, do, we, do we think about prayer that way? I, I, friend, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure that I do. So yes, indeed, in conclusion, there was a cosmic event that happened in this story, but the real cosmic event is this, prayer. And it's available to you and I today. We're going to go to communion now this morning. I'm going to pray before you do, and I, I just want to point this out to you. I want to put this verse on screen for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, because here's the deal. Um, we need to be praying every day that Jesus will come again. Amen? I understand the concern that, well, yeah, but if I, if I pray that and that were to happen tomorrow, I, I might feel like I'm okay, but there are people I love who aren't. What should that do? How should that motivate you and motivate me? But listen, I also want to show you on screen here, that's exactly what we're doing when we do communion every week. Paul, in his instructions to the church in 1 Corinthians 11, he goes through the, the whole thing about what communion's about and why we should do it and how we should do it, and he ends with these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at this, you proclaim publicly what you're doing is the Lord's death until he comes. We are witnessing and giving a testimony here this morning as we break bread that we expect Jesus to come again. Church, let me encourage you. Let's pray to that end this Christmas, this Advent season. Pray with me, would you?